2: Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
1: The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2 and streaming on NFL Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL Plus. Visit NFL.com slash schedule release to learn more. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works.
3: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb, and I'm Joe McCormick. You know, we've been talking a lot recently about, you know, some perhaps more ambiguous risks to humanity. Oh yeah. Uh, but but not so much uh, the ambiguity in this episode. <laughs> Wait, what are the ambiguous risks? Oh, you know, we're talking about like, you know, you're getting, talking about like social media uh-huh. and, how, uh, and how it's affecting the human condition. Or, you know, certainly in our episodes on psychedelics, you know, we talked about uh, some of the more ambiguous and maybe even more concrete threats facing uh, humanity and to what extent some commentators think that the psychedelic experience can prepare us for those threats.
0: Oh, okay. So kind of vague, possible psychic and cultural threats. Right, yeah. Uh, less
3: Less threats like a huge, Rock hitting you, right? Because <laughs> because what we're going to be talking about today is certainly the kind of threat that um, that a mushroom is not going to be able to help us with, right? So we wanted to talk about an interesting,
0: perhaps hair-raising story from recent space news. So just within the past couple of weeks, Earth had a very close encounter, an almost perfectly timed intersection with the orbit of a fast-moving object from outer space. And the creepy and fascinating thing about this is that this object came very close to Earth and we had almost no forewarning that it was coming. So what was this thing? Well, I actually first saw it when uh, Robert shared an article about it uh, on on social media. That's right. Yeah. Uh, There we go determining the topics of all conversation.
3: Well, and the crazy thing about it is that, you know, as we've discussed in the show, the more extreme things get to, you know, they rise to the surface in social media. Mm -hmm. And especially right now, it tends to be stuff related to politics. Yeah. But then somehow... Uh, this one story breached uh, the surface. It may have helped that it had the word killer
0: in the headline. Right. <laughs> so this was an asteroid that is now officially called Asteroid 2019 OK. And that doesn't mean it's OK. That's just a,
3: you know, that's the
0: code assigned
3: to it. I read it as Asteroid 2019 Whew, OK. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's kind of like that. So it was detected by astronomers in Brazil and the United States before being confirmed by NASA JPL. And on July 24th or 25th, it passed by Earth at a speed of about 24 kilometers per second, which is like 54,000 miles per hour pretty fast. And what we want to emphasize is it's already gone, mm-hmm. okay? So we should emphasize that at the beginning. This asteroid represents zero threat to us on any meaningful time scale. It is past. It's on its way to other things. And the reason we're talking about this is that I feel like this event is instructive. It shows the real life-and-death importance of astronomy in general and improving our capabilities for cataloging near-Earth objects more specifically, uh, and it's also, I think, an event that really reveals the part of you that either leans toward the positive or the negative interpretation of things. You know, the, the glass half full, half empty kind of thing. Right. The near miss versus near hit.
3: Yeah. I, I'm also reminded of the old adage. You, or I don't know if it's truly an adage, but the observation that uh, you never hear the one that has your name on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, generally talking about, say, uh, you know, a bullet in a military uh, situation. It's like on The Sopranos, you know, you never know the one that's coming for you. Right. But the thing is, we are, we are in the business right now of trying to know the ones that have our name on it. Right. The, the asteroids particularly that have, that, that have Earth or possibly Earth uh, printed on their side. Yeah,
0: and it's always going to be a probabilistic thing when we're looking right. this far out. So you wouldn't know for sure, but you'd say, you know, we think there's a, you know, zero point whatever percent chance this has Earth on its name, or has Earth's name on it, or maybe has a 95 percent chance.
3: Right, yeah, to be clear, and we'll get into some of the statistics here in a bit, but there there are no asteroids out there right now that that NASA or anyone else is saying this is a definite collision course. No, there, no big ones. No big ones. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously there are ones that are going to impact us in, with 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 little or no uh, effect. Yeah. But in terms of like really big problematic asteroids, the ones that, of the ones that we know of, and it is a you know just a segment of the ones that are out there. There are none that we are like positive like this is the one. This is the one we have to act on.
0: Right now, right now, yeah, yeah. But this 2019 OK asteroid, so first of all, the question, we can play the glass half full, half empty thing with, was it big or was it small? Mm -hmm. Well, it was between, we think, about 57 and 130 meters in diameter, which is 187 to 427 feet. Is that big or is that small? Well, it depends on what you compare it to. The object that struck the Earth 66 million years ago, the impact that most likely played a major role in the extinction of the dinosaurs. That one was probably, I've seen estimates of 10 to 15 kilometers across. I've seen people say more recently, this might be an updated or more, more precise figure, that it was like 15 or 16 kilometers across. That's obviously a lot bigger. We're, we're talking uh, this object that just went past us is a couple of orders of magnitude smaller than that.
3: So we're not talking about like necessarily a full-blown civilization buster. No, or no, no. Extinction event uh, level uh, impact.
0: Yeah, and fortunately, Astronomers believe that more than 90% of objects in this extinction event size category category the category of things on the scale of the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs uh, the things like that, more than 90 percent in our orbital vicinity have already been discovered and cataloged by NASA and other observers and space agencies.
3: Yeah, because the bigger ones are simply easier to spot. Right,
0: exactly. Uh, so for the biggest of the biggest, we're pretty sure we know where they are uh, that, and that we would be able to predict if they're headed our way, which is good, Right. But then again, uh, you could compare it to something on the other side. So uh, the Chelyabinsk meteor, which exploded in the atmosphere over Russia in 2013, was only about 20 meters in diameter, just 20 meters. And this meteor was not even large enough to reach the ground. It didn't hit the surface of the Earth. Like most smaller objects entering our atmosphere from space, it exploded in the atmosphere in what's known as an airburst. And this This explosion injured over a 1,000 people, I think it was close to 1,500 people. It damaged buildings, it collapsed roofs, it smashed windows in this big elliptical impact zone that stretched out for dozens of kilometers. Um, And and a lot of the damage and human injuries from this air blast were due to like blown out glass from windows hitting people.
3: I should say the footage also of course was incredible and certainly certainly makes you feel like a primate when you watch it. You yes. feel like a, a, a an earthbound primate um that has no control over the great fiery mass that is just seared across the horizon. It's
0: a it's a 2001 a space odyssey monolith kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh you were like, "Well, okay, should I worship that?" Maybe. <laughs> uh but so that one, the one that caused all that damage was just 20 meters wide. This this one that just passed us was somewhere between 57 and 130 meters wide. That's A good bit bigger. It's somewhere between an extinction event level asteroid or or object and, uh, you know, one of the the smaller ones like we've seen with Chelyabinsk. In fact, the size of this uh, thing that just passed us is probably roughly comparable to the size of uh, something we're going to talk about more in a bit, the meteor that exploded over Siberia in 1908 in the event known as the Tunguska impact. Mm. And like I said, we'll, we'll come back to that later. But
3: basically though well, the, the 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 issue is it it's depends on where it hits yes. right
0: yeah the thing that just passed us uh, the, the point is that it it poses no threat to us it's already gone but if it had hit earth That would be really scary Mm -hmm. on the off chance that it came anywhere near a populated
3: area. And of course, location is is important with any of these. I mean, I've uh, read uh, arguments that the Chicxulub um, impact, like if it had hit, uh, uh, if it had uh, been a water impact as opposed to a land impact, um, you know, it would have made some difference in what occurred. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's going to be a factor no matter what scale you're talking about here.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, that, that plays a big role. We'll talk more about that as we go on. So uh, so we talked about the size. Another question is how close exactly did it come to Earth? Because th- there are these simulations that you can watch online. You should look this up mm-hmm. actually that show like the the orbital pathways of Earth and this asteroid. And as they they sort of approach each other, as the intersection of these two orbital pathways comes up, it'll zoom in further and further for you. <laughs> and they it looks like they're just on a perfect collision course, and then they just miss at the last second. Now what what does that miss look like on distances that are appreciable to us? The answer is it came within about seventy-three thousand kilometers, or about forty-five thousand miles, of Earth. So that, that sounds pretty far away, right? That's at least a few trips to Disneyland. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you stay zoomed out, like we were just talking about, looking at uh, looking at its path on like an Earth orbit scale, the distance is something you can't even really see. It passed inside the orbit of the Moon, and that's pretty close.
3: Yeah, like it is essentially. You could you could say it has passed within the realm. of uh, of, of within the sphere of of human uh, culture. You know, like we have been to the moon and this thing has traversed the space betwixt the two.
0: Yeah, and it wasn't even in the far side of of the moon uh, circumference. Like in fact, 2019 OK came within less than 20% of the distance from the earth to the moon. It was pretty close. Uh, according to a to a piece I was reading on Vox by Kelsey Piper, on average about 0.5% of asteroids that come within this range of Earth actually hit us. So that's that's a nice thing to consider, right? That's on the other hand, the other 99.5% within this range still pass us by like 2019 OK did, you know, the, the vast majority are not going to hit Earth. So that's good, right? But we kind of must ask the question, what if an asteroid of this size did hit Earth? What exactly would happen? Uh, so I was reading an article by Liam Mannix of the Sydney Morning Herald who interviewed the Swinburne University astronomer, Dr. Alan Duffy. And Duffy said that an object of this size would be what astronomers sometimes, maybe maybe colloquially, call a city killer. So it's not of a size that would cause a mass extinction or potentially qualify as like a planet killer. Its worst effects would probably be local in the area around where it hit. And if it had struck Earth, Duffy compared this hypothetical impact to something like a large nuclear weapons strike.
3: One of our uh, listeners on the, um, the, the Facebook uh, discussion module, the mm-hmm. Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussion module Facebook group, shared a, a, like a map tool. Mm. where you can input your city and then look at uh, what would happen if various uh, models of uh, nuclear weaponry hit your city mm. and determine like how far the danger the, the the danger zone is how you know far the 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 radi- radiation uh, extends it's a scary tool yeah but, but it also just really drives home that you know, most of these these devices are very capable of of destroying modern cities yeah or at least taking such a sizable and crucial chunk out of them to effectively destroy it. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, so this impact would have actually
0: been bigger than the real atomic weapons that we have seen deployed on cities in in human history. Uh, According to Duffy, this impact, if it had hit Earth, would have hit with over, quote, 30 times the energy of the atomic blast at Hiroshima. And so you might be wondering, okay, if you don't usually think about these things, how would it have that much energy? It's not a bomb, right? It's just a rock. Why would it act like a bomb that explodes? Um, So what you have to remember is that the, the energy released upon an impact with Earth's surface is a product of the mass and velocity of the falling object. Now normally when objects like a chunk of rock fall to the ground, they don't behave like a bomb because they're relatively light and they're relatively slow. So this, this asteroid would be a falling object of a size and a speed that we never encounter in normal life in Earth's atmosphere. Something, you know, maybe 100 meters across, like a giant boulder or a chunk of a mountainside. Things that big don't usually fall to begin with. I mean, except maybe like huge airplanes. Uh, and then it would be traveling at 24 kilometers per second, which is more than 20 times the speed of your average shooting bullet. Wow yeah exactly and so once you multiply those things together that mass and that velocity uh, and it also matters of course the angle at which it enters the atmosphere or hits the ground but uh, w- once you build up these levels of kinetic energy any normal falling object like a huge chunk of rock or metal uh, as you would find in the case of an asteroid essentially becomes a bomb upon impact
3: and this is a fact we've touched on in some of our more science fiction episodes where we've talked about um, Uh, about how if you simply had orbital superiority over a planet, be Mm. it this planet or another planet that had occupants, uh, just by virtue of having uh, orbit, uh, an orbital position, you could drop anything. You would not need to drop a bomb from that height. If you could drop just a big piece of metal or a yeah. rock, etc. then you already, you have a tremendous weapon at your disposal. I mean, this is where we get the, you know, the, 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 the term rods from God. Yeah. Uh, kinetic the, energy yeah, weapons. Kin, yeah. Kinetic, kinetic energy weapons would just be a matter of just drop anything from up there and it can destroy like nothing else.
0: Yeah. It's scary. Now, on the other hand, uh, we want to remember throughout this episode to not be alarmist and not get people too wor- worked up. Now, first of all, This asteroid, like we said, it already missed us. It's on its way. About things like this in general, it really does matter where it hits. So Mm -hmm. fortunately, uh, in this scenario, the majority of Earth's humans are actually squeezed into a fairly small subsection of Earth's surface. So chances are that even if an asteroid like this were to hit Earth... It would probably strike in the ocean. Now that could have negative consequences depending on where it happens.
3: But but definitely better than it hitting, um, uh, like you know, land. Yeah, populated area, especially. Right.
0: Yeah. Uh, And if it did strike on land, it would probably most likely hit in a rural, less populated area. Now, not like that would be okay, Mm -hmm. but that would be you know obviously fewer casualties than it hitting uh, one of these smaller subsections of Earth's surface where there are a lot of people. Now, small objects from space pass by Earth and enter Earth's atmosphere all the time. What's interesting about this asteroid was the combination of its size and how close it passed. Apparently, a few dozen smaller objects, like less than 12 meters in diameter, pass within the orbit of the moon every year. And according to one article I was reading – Objects of about the size of 2019 OK only pass by this close to Earth roughly once every 10 years. So, so we just had like a, a decade event.
3: Mm-hmm. And that's generally our way of understanding uh, these these uh, these asteroids. We generally talk about like the frequency of their occurrence. Is this a once in a decade? Is this a once in a lifetime? Is this, you know, once in a, in a thousand years or more? That's right. Because all these things we
0: think of across time scales in, in terms of probability, right? You know, right. Right. Things that are unlikely to happen any given year become near certainties at a
3: certain time scale. Right. And of course, these devastating impacts of, uh, uh, you, know, of, of you know, from prehistoric times and, uh, you know, they tend to leave a mark. You can tell that they occurred and we can extrapolate the kind of damage that, uh, that resonated.
0: Exactly right. So to come back to another thing we, we mentioned earlier, we mentioned that this thing snuck up. Right it, mm-hmm. it seemed to come out of nowhere. people astronomers did not detect it until just days before its arrival, and
3: that's ultimately the most sobering thing about it. Is yeah. not that 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 asteroids like this exist or that they that they they reach these sizes or or pass in this proximity, but that we just didn't see it coming, and then it was gone. Like it just passed us in the night, and then we realized how close we came.
0: Ah, uh-huh. so the question is why? Uh, There are a couple of reasons here. One is that it was relatively small and faint. Obviously, it's easier to use our telescopes to pick up and track near-Earth objects that are larger Mm -hmm. and reflect more light. Another reason is that it came generally from the direction of the sun, which makes it harder to see because of the glare in the background. Another reason it was hard to pick up was that it was traveling very fast. This makes it harder to detect. Other asteroids recently passing by Earth have been slower. Uh, According to an article I was reading by Allison Chu in the Washington Post, most of the recent uh, asteroids passing by Earth have been between 4 and 19 kilometers per second. Remember, again, this one was booking at 24 kilometers per second, which Mm. is very fast, which also, of course, potentially means that if it had hit Earth, the impact would have been more powerful because it's going faster. Next, the shape of its orbit made it difficult to detect. 2019 OK had a very elliptical orbit, meaning it was not roughly circular like a lot of the orbit of a lot of things, most of the planets. It had an oblong oval shape. So this asteroid, as it travels around the sun, sometimes it comes very close, like within the orbit of Venus, and other times it gets very far away, out beyond the orbit of Mars. This also made it more difficult to detect. And so if you add all this up, you've got this small, fast-moving object that's relatively faint out there orbiting the sun. And then suddenly, within maybe just a couple of weeks before it passes us, it becomes bright enough to see. And then other people have to see it and confirm it. Uh, Somebody's got to be looking at the right place at the right time in the first place to see it. it. It's not easy. Things like this really can just sneak up on us. And scientists don't necessarily always have forewarning. So this kind of serves as a reminder that our orbital neighborhood is not a void. Space is not just a void. It's full of rocks and comets and stuff. And that while our astronomers do a really admirable job cataloging near-Earth objects with the tools available to them, Objects of really frightening size can still creep up on us in ways that give us only days or even hours of warning or maybe no warning at all. Speaking to the Sydney Morning Herald, Australian National University astronomer Dr. Brad Tucker said that it is completely possible that objects of comparable size, objects about the size of 2019 OK, pass by us like this and we never detect them at all. Sometimes they just go right by and no, no human is any the wiser.
3: All right, well, on that sobering note, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, uh, we will discuss what an asteroid of this size would do if it actually hit us. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples.
2: All right, we're back.
0: All right, so we're talking about the idea of uh, the asteroid that just recently passed uh, the Earth within the past few weeks, 2019, Okay, which, again, zero risk to us now. It's gone, you know. Uh, But we're thinking about what an asteroid of this size, you know, roughly this size would do if it were to be, you know, the 0.5 percent of asteroids that come within this range that actually do hit Earth. Uh, we know that an impact from a large enough asteroid can be devastating on a planetary scale. Like space impacts have contributed to mass extinctions in Earth history. And, of course, we know that the main theory explaining the, the KT extinction or the KPG extinction was a theory involving a space impact. And, of course, th- this was the extinction event that killed the dinosaurs about 66 million years ago. It's the third greatest extinction event in Earth history. The basic details are probably familiar to you at this point, mm-hmm. but a, a comet or asteroid, some bolide from space, hit the Earth in what what is now the Yucatan Peninsula, uh, was probably – I've seen estimates uh, – I think maybe the older estimates are that it was 10 to 15 kilometers in diameter. More recently, I think I've seen people saying 16 kilometers in diameter is a huge object, you know, measured on a scale of miles or kilometers. And an object of this size impacting Earth at orbital speed is is not just a collision. It is, as we were talking about earlier, a detonation. It releases a blast of energy equivalent to millions of nuclear warheads all exploding at the same time. And things on this scale hitting the Earth are especially scary because they're not just threatening to organisms living in the local area, right? They can have planet-scale effects. Like the leading theory about the cause of the KPG extinction is that this impact happened, this bolide from space hit the Earth, and it threw up so much dust and debris into the atmosphere that it blocked out the sun for perhaps months, preventing photosynthesis, killing off huge numbers of plants and photosynthesizing organisms, which of course cut off food sources for larger animals, and more than three-quarters of Earth's species are believed to have been completely wiped out in this event. But there's good news. Scientists now think that if there are asteroids of that size on any kind of likely collision course with Earth, we would very, very likely already know about them. It's not a sure thing, but we would really probably know uh, because, like I said, we've we've cataloged more than 90 percent, we think, of, of asteroids that could be of this size in our orbital neighborhood. And we're always trying to improve our near-Earth object detection and mapping capabilities. This is an astronomy priority of species-level importance.
3: Yes. Keep watching the skies.
0: But objects on the scale of the one that just passed us, remember, it's not even close to as big as that one. But objects on this scale are trickier. (laughs) They're more difficult to be sure about because they're smaller. We also have less confidence in our ability to detect them ahead of time. So... What would happen if an object roughly on the scale of 2019 OK were to hit the Earth? Well, it turns out we actually have a pretty close analogy from 20th century history, which we alluded to earlier, and that is the Tunguska event. Robert, for my money, this is one of the most darkly fascinating events uh, of the last few hundred years, I think.
3: Yeah, they're, they're you know, it's, it's one of these stories that certainly it's, uh, given the fact that it did not uh, decimate a major center of population, mm-hmm. uh, makes it something that doesn't feel, you know, ghoulish to uh, to look at but it is it's it, it does have this kind of mysterious quality to it it's almost like a it's like a warning shot from the gods
0: it is also strangely kind of a magnet for cranky theories oh yeah uh, it really attracts you know people who want to believe that uh, like a sudden black hole or a bit of antimatter appeared and caused it or that it was UFOs or some kind of science fiction, you know, like Tesla experiment or something. Yes, I've seen
3: those uh, various conspiracy theories and whatnot.
0: I'm I'm sorry for repeating them because those things are not correct. I mean, we're we're positive this was a space impact. Right. So what happened? Well, on the morning of June 30th, 1908, okay, 1908, an object from space, probably some kind of asteroid, entered Earth's atmosphere and— possibly hit the ground but more likely exploded in the air at an altitude of about 5 to 10 kilometers over an area of eastern Siberia around the stony Tunguska River. And this is an area of extremely sparsely populated wilderness. There's not a lot of people, not a lot of population density out Mm -hmm. there. And this explosion is hard for us to imagine. annihilated roughly 2,000 square kilometers of forest land, leaving trees flattened or stripped of all branches. The photos that exist of this damaged area look like a nuclear test site. Uh, The forest is just shredded and pancaked. And there actually were, despite how sparsely populated this area was, there were uh, some contemporaneous witnesses who were Fairly close, and by fairly close, I mean within dozens of miles. (laughs) uh, So uh, I want to read one contemporaneous account from a witness named S.B. Semenov, who lived in a place called Vanovara, which was about 60 kilometers south-southeast from the epicenter of the blast site. So remember, this is 60 kilometers away. Uh, Here's how his account goes. I was sitting on the porch of the house at the trading station of Venovara at breakfast time and looking towards the north. I had just raised my axe to hoop a cask when suddenly in the north above Vasily Ilyich Onkul's Tunguska Road, the sky split in two and high above the forest, the whole northern part of the sky appeared to be covered with fire. At that moment, I felt great heat as if my shirt had caught fire. This heat came from the north side. I wanted to pull off my shirt and throw it away, but at that moment there was a bang in the sky and a mighty crash was heard. I was thrown onto the ground about five and a half meters away from the porch and for a moment I lost consciousness. My wife ran out and carried me into the hut. The crash was followed by noise like stones falling from the sky or guns firing. The earth trembled and when I lay on the ground, I covered my head because I was afraid stones might hit it. At the moment when the sky opened, a hot wind as from a cannon blew past the huts from the north. It left its mark on the ground in the form of little paths. It damaged onion plants. Later, it turned out that many panes in the windows had been blown out, and the iron hasp in the door of the barn had been broken. When the fire appeared, I saw Kosolopov, who was working near the window of the house, sit down on the ground, seize his head with both hands, and then run into the hut, 60 kilometers away.
3: Way. Wow and 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 this was uh, again this was uh, 1908 like to what extent? I mean, today, if you saw that, you would your your mind would instantly turn to nuclear weapons. Yeah, you know, uh, but at, but there
0: were nuclear, no nuclear. Yeah, weapons yeah, here.
3: there was nothing on the human scale that could uh, that, that could explain what he was witnessing. I mean, it, you're you're left to you know astronomical explanations if you had privy to them. Otherwise, it's just you know, purely supernatural destruction.
0: Exactly. Well, some I have read reports that some of the native Siberian peoples of the region of the, uh, known as the Evenki tribes or the Tungus people, believed that the Tunguska impact was the work of a god named Ogdi, who's the god of thunder and lightning. Uh, Though I've also seen Ogdi described as these these creatures that were like metal birds of thunder and lightning. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, Other witnesses generally describe having seen like a blue-white streak in the sky followed by what appeared to be this enormous fire consuming the whole sky and then this gigantic column of black smoke and loud blasts and crashing noises booming over the land. The air blast was picked up by meteorological equipment really far away, like more than 6,000 kilometers away in England. And reportedly in the nights following the explosion, and I'm not sure this story is true but this is just an anecdote repeated through history, May, may or may not be true. Supposedly, the sky remained bright over parts of Europe and Asia in the following nights. And uh, And according to this anecdote, it was so bright that you could stand outside at night and read a newspaper by the hmm. light that was still glowing in the sky. Uh, the blast triggered fires that burned trees tens of kilometers away. Uh, amazingly, despite how destructive this blast was, I've, I've read the most recent research on it has found evidence of only three reported human casualties from the impact, and this is apparently just sheer luck, you know, because it was out there where very few people live in an extremely sparse wilderness. If it had struck over Beijing or London, it would have been much like a city getting hit with a nuclear weapon. It probably would have killed millions.
3: Yeah, and I mean, if it had hit a, a major center of population, even in 1908, I mean, it could have changed the course of history. I mean, it just... it. it it, it's it's impossible to really. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure you can you can sort of like follow individual, uh, uh, you know, life stories and whatnot. Perhaps there's been some speculation on this, but I mean, it would it would have changed the course of history. It would have it would have killed so many people and impacted uh, you know uh, places of, of of power. It would have had uh, an impact on on politics. I mean, this is. It's it it's it's almost hard to fathom uh, the 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 different world we would live in had this thing impacted pretty much anywhere else. Right uh, now, one thing we do know is that
0: the, an, an object of this size is not. Uh, while it w- it could have had worldwide events, like you're saying, like cultural impacts mm-hmm. that far, it would not have been like the uh, the the KPG extinction event uh, size thing because it wouldn't have like thrown up sediment that completely blocked out the sun and like cut off photosynthesis. You know, it wouldn't be that big.
3: Right, like if it had hit St. Petersburg, it would not have wiped out humanity. It would not have wiped out, uh, you know, all members of the the Russian Empire or anything to to, to that extent. But it would have severely, uh, it would have have killed countless people in mm -hmm. that one city.
0: Yeah, catastrophic local effects and maybe some maybe some smaller global effects. right? Um, And so uh, another question, I guess, is with strikes like this, these smaller ones, not like the, you know, uh, KPG event level uh, thing, but with these smaller ones, has anybody studied what actually happens to nearby humans and other life forms when this type of impact occurs? Like if a tunguska size object hits, what happens to you if you're nearby? I, I did find, yes, there is at least one study of this. Uh, It was published in Geophysical Research Letters in 2017. It's by Rumpf, Lewis, and Atkinson. It's called Asteroid Impact Effects and Their Immediate Hazards for Human Populations. And what the authors did here is they simulated the impacts of more than 50,000 asteroid strikes at random locations on the surface of the Earth to gain insights on the average effects of of human populations who would be nearby. And so here were a few of their main findings. One is that, Uh, objects uh, less than maybe like 60 or 70 meters across tend not to hit the surface of the earth, but rather always explode in the atmosphere. And this is not without risks. Like remember all the damage caused by the Chelyabinsk meteor, which exploded in the sky, but it, uh, it tends to generate the airburst only, and, and airbursts can still be powerful and dangerous. The, the main theory, of course, about the Tunguska event is that it was an airburst. It exploded in the atmosphere and didn't have a chance to hit the ground, even though it was a good bit bigger. Uh, but for most sizes of asteroids, by far the greatest risk to humans is from what's known as wind blast. These are wave, you know, wave of hot compressed air exploding out of the object. Uh, The second greatest risk after that is just straight uh, thermal risk, heat generated due to the impact. And then the third greatest risk in general was due to tsunamis. And the authors actually found that risk to human life from tsunamis is relatively lower than they expected, uh, but it increases a lot as the object becomes larger than like 200 or 250 meters in diameter. And their estimates only include objects up to 400 meters in diameter, so effects could change dramatically as objects become bigger and bigger. Now, Robert, I I think we should step back after what we've just been talking about. We we should do uh, a reality check. We don't want to be alarmist. So to reiterate, the odds are in our favor here, at least on short timescales, because the vast majority of asteroids of this size don't come this close to Earth, maybe roughly one every 10 years by that estimate we talked about earlier. Uh, Only about 0.5% of asteroids that pass within this range will actually hit Earth. And then even if one does hit Earth, most of the world's surface is water, though of course there can be threats from an impact in water depending on where it happens. And then much of the land surface of Earth is sparsely populated. So on short timescales the odds of a catastrophic impact on a city or something like that are very very low but it's one of those cases where the chance of a bad outcome on a short time scale may be low but the consequences when that off chance does come to pass are devastating, mm-hmm. and on of course the 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 other side of the coin is that on long enough timescales these events go from extremely unlikely to near certainty.
3: Yeah, one of the things I keep keep asking when I look at all these stats is like, okay, are, are, am I comfortable with those odds? Mm-hmm. And but then if I'm comfortable with the odds, am I am I comfortable with the stakes? Yeah, you know.
0: Yeah, totally. Uh, and it also raises, I guess, a tangentially interesting question, at least to me, which is like, how long of a time scale should we be concerned about? Mm-hmm. Like if something is a civilization-level threat, but it's unlikely to happen, you know, more than once within the next 10,000 years, how much of our attention
3: should it get? Well, that's a question. How much should or how much will it, you know? I uh, mean, well, yeah, those are very
0: – I mean, obviously – Because we're dealing with humans
3: here. And exactly. we tend to be rather terrible at uh, – at weighing, you know, our immediate situation with long-term threats to um, to, to the, uh, the survival of the human race or to the health of the planet, et cetera. You're, yeah,
0: you're exactly right about that. I mean, obviously, we're not even appropriately preparing for extremely likely to near certain climate-related problems right. that are less than 100 years away. Some are even, you know, happening now or decades away. So maybe this question about longer timescales is moot, just given, like, what our capabilities are. Like, maybe it doesn't even matter what we should be doing because humans just can't make themselves do it. But I don't want to be resigned or, you know, I, I don't want to throw in the towel about that just because we haven't been good at it so far.
3: No, because we have the we, we have the tremendous uh, ability uh, to correct these errors. I mean, uh, this is often brought up uh, on the, the subject of climate change. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you, well, that's what I was just referring to. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, but but specifically with climate change, like the, the uh, yes, we've got ourselves into quite a mess. And that's, that's bad. But the good side of it is we got ourselves into so much of this mess. That just shows you the potential of human technology. Like, mm-hmm. look at what we can do. Granted, uh, we screwed things up here. But we imagine if we use that same level of energy and intensity towards a corrective measure.
0: Yes. Uh, th- though I, I want to be clear that so we're not misunderstood here. We are not advising people to hang their hat on like a potential like holy grail technology no. that will get rid of all the carbon or something like that. That is not a gamble that's worth playing with. I think no, you're no. talking about, like, other energy technologies. Other
3: energy technologies and also just, like, corrective measures. Like, yeah. a, and a willingness to change.
0: In that case, yeah, absolutely. But I don't know. I mean, I, I do think, like, this is a different kind of thing than climate change because climate change is something that we're, like, we're, we're like, near certain about some types of effects that are coming within a, you know, compared to this, a relatively short timescale. They're, like, almost definitely going to happen within decades or 100 years or something and the effects will be catastrophic. So that's like you'd probably say that's actually a higher priority. Right. But but this is a different priority. So that it's like a catastrophic tail risk. It's unlikely that we would get hit by an asteroid like this anytime soon, but if we did, it could be really bad.
3: Right. Of course, the the other obvious thing to point out is that asteroids have i mostly, if not entirely, and thankfully uh, not been politicized. Oh, yeah. So nobody is out there saying, why are, we, why are we charting the asteroids? Like, look at the... I mean, they... You well, easily, they are. You could, I don't know. You I have read imagine. about this. I mean, you could easily imagine somebody taking up this as, as their, their, their horrible uh, battle cry and saying, look how much we're spending on space exploration. Look how much we're spending on, this, on, on, on watching the movements of the asteroids. And look at these astronomical chances that anything's going to hit us.
0: Well, the unfortunate fact about the politicization of science is that it does not require both sides in order to to happen, mm-hmm. you can asymmetrically politicize an, a currently non-political issue. Yes. Uh, you know, just by having one side get worked up about it, and then of course the process is irreversible. And, and right, uh, uh, so please don't do
3: that with, <laughs> with
0: <laughs> planetary defense and stuff about space. Right. Yeah.
3: Hopefully, I think planetary defense sh- should be something that we that everybody can agree on, and we should all like everybody should be able to agree. Yes, this is a this is a good investment in our future. It's like having a lock on the door to your house.
0: Yeah, but then again, the exact same thing should be true about alternative energy and climate change and stuff. And it's, it's true. not. I mean, clearly what is in our interest to depoliticize does not correlate to what people actually do depoliticize.
3: I think hopefully one I think one thing in our favor here is that, as we've discussed on the show, one of the problems with climate issues is that it's it's very difficult for most of us to wrap our hand, heads around all that's happening in this vast chaotic system of atmosphere and uh, and, and climate, uh, you know, particularly when you're dealing with with larger periods of time.
0: Oh, an asteroid's more like an easy to identify villain.
3: It's like it's like a rock thrown at your head. Like yeah. we can instantly be like, yeah, like I'm here. That's there. Uh-huh. That should not hit where I am. And like we can all agree that that, that this this is a bad thing. That should be a, it should should be avoided at all costs. And I think you're It's just you're right uh, about simply that. easier to to process in the mind. Yeah. It's an incoming projectile, and we've we've evolved to deal with that kind of threat.
0: That's a really good point. Uh, And I think it's absolutely, of course, worth investing in planetary defense at multiple levels, by the way, probably most importantly right now in expanding our surveying capabilities, right, Mm -hmm. to increase our ability to catalog and track near-Earth objects, which we're already doing a pretty good job at with, like, Earth-based telescopes and all that, but uh, expanding those capabilities. That sounds like a very good idea to me. And then I guess uh, the next thing on top of that is something that maybe we'll talk about at the end of the episode is what would we do if we did detect something? You know, pretty, we we did have forewarning. We're pretty sure something's on a collision course with Earth. Is there anything we can actually do about it?
3: Right. All right, well, let's take another break. And when we come back... We'll discuss our general state of preparedness for small near-Earth objects. And then, yeah, what, what we would do if something did seem to have our name on it.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name.
2: Today's episode
0: is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Okay, so Robert, we need to talk about what we would do <laughs> if we got some bad news about a an asteroid uh, coming down the pike in our direction.
3: All right. Well, yeah. Well, first let's 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 touch again on our general state of preparedness. So, okay. like we said earlier, ninety percent of extinction class uh, near Earth objects NEOs are are marked,
0: and it works out in our favor because the bigger ones are easier to see.
3: Exactly. That's fortunate. Yeah. Our ability to, to track these things has certainly come a long way. Like I was reading uh, about how in 1998, uh, observations of the asteroid 1997 XF11 suggested that this half-mile-wide object would just simply hit the Earth in 2028. Wow. Only later did it turn out via better orbit analysis that the Earth actually isn't in danger from this particular asteroid. So it was just, you know, more or less taken off the list. Uh Based on our current data, NASA has a sort of rogues gallery of potentially dangerous asteroids or, uh, you know, also uh, known as uh, PHAs, uh, PHAs potentially hazardous asteroids, that's Uh the abbreviation. Um, And these are ones that are predicted to to make close passes, such as, say, um, 3200 Phaethon, which made a close pass in 2017 and will make a closer pass in 2093. But we're talking about a 2017 distance of, uh, uh, what, let's see, 10,312,034 kilometers or 6,407,601 miles. And then uh, the next pass, we're going to see it come in at uh, uh, 2,964,000 kilometers or 1,841,000 miles, which is still, uh, again, close enough to be of concern. But again, this is just to, to really drive home the distances we're talking about here. So there are a number there are a number of potentially hazardous asteroids but even the more hazardous ones have a pretty low chance of hitting the earth. One of the biggest known dangers out there right now for example is 2000 SG344 which has a 1 in 1100 chance of impact in 2071. And again, I come back to that question. You might or, or, you might be cool with those odds, but are you cool with the stakes? Right. It's, again, easier to spot the big civilization busters, and that's where that 90% tracking rate comes in. But according to the Planetary Society, which has a a number of wonderful um, uh, educational resources on space exploration and astronomy, Mm -hmm. we're only tracking like 20,000 out of a million smaller but potentially deadly PHAs.
0: So we need to improve our tracking capabilities.
3: Right. For these, again, to deal with these potential city busters, Uh uh, especially. So I, I suppose the answer is that, you know, we're doing better than we ever have, but there's a lot of room for improvement and lots more room for certainty when the stakes are this high. And this is also a very important reason to always support and vote for political candidates and parties that value science, scientific consensus, and, uh, and manifest that support for science in the form of policy and funding. Yeah. Now, the next question is, OK, what if we what if we do spot one that is just coming way too close for comfort? What are we prepared to do about it? Yeah. And this is an area where various plans have, pre- have been presented over the years. And it's really like it's one of these scenarios that that uh, the, the, you really get the sense that a, a lot of uh, you know astronomers and scientists really relish the, the problem, you uh-huh. know, as uh, a pure thought experiment. Like what can you do? Uh, to uh, to deal with an asteroid that is on course to hit the earth or getting way too close to the earth for our our comfort level,
0: so you get Bruce Willis. <laughs> you get, oh no, I'm sorry I made that joke. I you know, I was like, I'm gonna go this episode without referencing Armageddon, and then I just did it anyway, yeah.
3: Well, I've never seen Armageddon, so I can't. I can't even chime in on that. Uh, I don't know if it's worth your time. Yeah, but I've seen Chronicles of Riddick, and that had a hey. that had a dangerous uh, sort of near Earth object, like the the Necromonger spaceship. Oh like a, yeah, it's okay. Viewed as a comet, right? Oh man, those uh,
0: those rat tail braids on Carl Urban's head, and that <laughs> that is the near Earth object
3: uh, that I'm most worried about. All right, so a near Earth object. Coming at the planet, what can you do? Well, all the, all the proposed solutions tend to fall under one of two categories: either you destroy the near Earth object, fragmenting it into smaller chunks, or you alter its trajectory.
0: I am of the you know I'm not, I'm not an expert in this realm, but I'm the of the opinion that one of the forks of this dilemma is much better than the other.
3: Well, blowing it up is certainly very, uh, you know, I think it's an ego-inflating option to be Uh sure, you know. Launch a nuke into that puppy and just make it go boom, right? Of course, the thing is this fragments uh, the larger NEO into smaller chunks that, you know, hopefully if you're dealing with a small enough NEO, you know, you're you're breaking it up into chunks that will then just burn up in the atmosphere should they hit the atmosphere. Uh But,, uh, you know, it's also you could look at it another way and say, "Well, it's a bit like turning an incoming slug or an incoming bullet into an incoming blast of buckshot.
0: right uh, according uh, According to Alan Duffy, one of the uh, researchers we mentioned earlier, he was quoted in The Washington Post saying that this option of uh, nuking it and blowing it into pieces, he says, quote, it makes for a great Hollywood film. The challenge with a nuke is that it may or may not work, but would definitely make the asteroid radioactive.
3: Okay, so radioactive buckshot. Yeah. Coming at you. Now, the more popular ideas involve changing the NEO's trajectory. Yes. And these range from crashing another object into it, so like croquet or billiard style, you know, to gent- gently nudging it off course. mm mm-hmm. this is generally known as the kinetic impact. But you could also use nukes for this as well, it should be pointed out. Like if you were to use a nuclear uh, device to deter, uh, to deflect an asteroid. Yeah, you you wouldn't have to, like, blow it up. You could just create an explosion in a close enough proximity to it to try and nudge it off course.
0: Yeah, so you could, you of course you could have a kinetic impact or an explosion that would try to divert its course. Another often discussed solution is what's known as the gravity tractor. Oh, yeah. I, I really like this one. So this involves flying a probe out to meet the asteroid and then having the probe simply fly alongside it. And remember that gravity works both ways. It not only attracts smaller bodies to larger ones, it also attracts larger bodies to smaller ones. For example, in our solar system, the planets actually do exert a small gravitational influence over the sun, causing it to sort of wobble in place. And the same would be true here. Over time, if you have a small spacecraft flying next to an asteroid, the asteroid would feel a slight gravitational tug toward the mutual center of gravity that it shares with the probe flying alongside it. And this gravitational tug would slowly, over time, nudge the asteroid off its trajectory. And uh, something about this solution is kind of beautiful to me. And I can tell from the way that many astrophysicists talk about this, they kind of feel the same way. I often see the gravity tractor described with the word elegant.
3: I, I feel like it's kind of the Pixar solution because I can imagine it as a Pixar short, mm-hmm. the big grumpy asteroid that's on its way to destroy us. And we solve it not by launching a weapon at it, but by sending a robot friend it gets out a, there.
0: It gets a manic pixie
3: gravity tractor. Yeah and uh, and then it just uh, over time you know it gradually steers off course and chooses a new path in life uh-huh now the key to either of these whether it's kinetic
0: impact or uh, or gravity tractor if you're trying to divert the trajectory the key is lead time mm-hmm. the earlier you detect a potential threat asteroid the easier it is to divert kind of like if you imagine you're trying to knock off the aim of a gun right If it's at point-blank range, this is a lot harder, you know, because the gun can move around a lot and still hit you. If it's at very long range, an extremely tiny nudge will cause a miss, right? Uh, just because of the distance, you know, it goes wider and wider as it gets farther and farther away.
3: Yeah, so it means that if, if you if you had advanced knowledge and you had the ability to send something uh, out there to it, some sort of probe, mm-hmm. uh, there are a number of more elegant solutions that present themselves that don't involve massive explosions and big kinetic strikes. Uh, so individual strategies involve everything from uh, affixing rocket boosters mm-hmm. uh, to, to an object to one of my favorites, simply painting it white. Uh, because consider if uh, if an object were were darker, it would reflect something like twenty percent of the sunlight. But a white coat of paint, you see that number go up to about ninety percent. So altering the way photons of light interact with an NEO's surface, either through paint, uh, or another way that is sometimes uh, that has been uh, uh, suggested is through solar sail shading. Hmm. So move some sort of large solar sail device, essentially a big space umbrella, between the sun and the asteroid huh. or use lasers etc and this would allow you to mess with the Yarkovsky effect. Hmm. Now the Yarkovsky effect this is the the NASA definition is uh, it's named for a 19th century uh, 19th century Russian engineer who first proposed the idea and that is that a small rocky space object would over long periods of time be noticeably nudged in its orbit by the slight push created when it absorbs sunlight and then re-emits that energy as heat. Yeah. Which is, pre- which is pretty wonderful to, to think about. It's like you don't have to send out, out a bomb or, or a robot to mess with it and like strap rockets onto it. All you have to do is send more or less light and you can alter the trajectory of this asteroid.
0: But again, all of these these options are highly dependent on having lots of lead time. right? Knowing way, way in advance that it could be coming our way. And this is yet again why the most important thing in all of these solutions is improving our survey and detection capabilities. Right. I think we should come up with uh, with an asteroid character right now that can be our stand-in villain. So when the asteroid, when the one appears that is a threat, mm-hmm. we've got a ready-made like uh, character in our mythology to pair it up with, right? Yeah, you know, like so you mentioned the Pixar movie, you got to have the grumpy asteroid that get, that gets paired with the manic pixie space probe.
3: Ooh, well, uh, you know, there are a few different ways you could go uh, in that uh, in, in that that area. I mean, obviously, one turns to comics, and you think of. Um, of uh, say, oh, what's the big Marvel guy, the planet guy? Galactus. I, I don't know. Galactus? Yeah, Galactus is a wonderful stand-in for wait, some sort of wait. enormous cosmic threat.
0: Does Galactus eat planets? He
3: that's, eats planets, That seems yeah. the other way around.
0: Well, it I seems mean— like a, It's like a poison pill that our planet would
3: eat. Well, I think the thing is once Galactus gets to your planet, it's over. Uh, uh, you know, it's it doesn't really matter exactly how he—you know, what happens. You just know you're doomed. Okay. and uh, And that's kind of the scenario with a significantly sized uh, asteroid. But uh, one thing I do keep coming back to with this topic and I have over the years is like we're we're talking about a, an actual threat to the planet and efforts to mitigate that threat mm-hmm. and to prevent uh, any of any objects from hitting us. And it's like it is ultimately such a noble venture. Mm-hmm. And again, one that we can all get behind and all celebrate. And really it it kind of – Serves as a as an example. I mean, it's it's almost like a, a perfectly romantic, uh, simple a problem to have in in mm-hmm. many respects. Like yeah. yes, there are technological uh, hurdles to overcome, but unlike so many more complicated problems in uh, in human events and even in the you know the health of our planet, like it's something with a clear cut threat. And some some basic steps that we can continue to take to try and mitigate the danger.
0: I agree. It's like it's like the one noble war. It's a you know a war. It's a fight for our lives, but without a human enemy.
3: Right. Yeah. And and also yeah, the next time you hear a bit of space news that doesn't just completely like you know fill you with wonder and uh, excitement where you're like, oh, well, that's just, I'm not particularly, uh, you know, won over by that. It doesn't like, you know, fill me with this zeal for space. Think back uh, to the fact that it's, it's all a part of our ongoing attempt to uh, better understand understand our, our local and overall, uh, you know, galactic neighborhood. And by doing so, you know, we're able to protect the planet from threats like this. Yeah,
0: Again, to protect ourselves against the wrath of Galactus or the wrath of Ogdi.
3: Yeah, All right, we're going to call it right there. But as always, if you want to check out more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. And if you want to support the show, the best thing you can do is rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so, and make sure you have subscribed, Uh, not only to this show, but also Invention, which is the other podcast that Joe and I host, where each episode, one episode a week, we look at a different invention from human techno history, discuss where it came from, what came before, how do we possibly live before we had, say, a toaster, (laughs) and then how was life changed forever afterwards. Huge thanks, as always, to
0: our excellent audio producer, Maya Cole. If you'd like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com.
1: Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to
2: learn more. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild